Welcome to the Loose Head Podcast. To accomplish great things, we must not only act, but also dream. Not only plan, but also believe. In a way, we want you to fail because we know you're pushing yourself to a new level. I've rarely seen capability compensate for a lack of character or a lack of capacity. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Loose Head Podcast and today is a very different episode as I'm not talking to a player or a coach but I'm rather talking to the man behind the scenes, Adam Redmond, how are you getting on? Hey Jeff, nice to meet you, you alright? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. On a personal level, you must be very excited by the URC. Um, yeah, geez, yeah, it's like working on, you know, I suppose trying to change the tournament around in a way that makes it work better on the pitch but also to you know work have a new brand now that's like the proper brand that we've designed and that we've spoken to countless amounts of people about and um, yeah just trying to give people players clubs supporters partners everybody just giving them something that they actually feel proud to be a part of Um, I think the some of the previous incarnations were you know, marriages of convenience and then in terms of branding, you know, it was very much sponsor led and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, like we even have things like our own font. And um, I think the fact that I'm excited about that should probably tell your listeners all they need to know about how exciting my life is. <laughs> you said that you said there that the previous competitions were kind of sponsor led. So that kind of leads me to imagine that it's not what you wanted yourself. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that that's exactly the way it is it's more this um it's only in the last uh probably five years that the tournament has had its own uh specific team of people working on it so prior to martin and i who's our ceo coming in uh the tournament was run in the under the same umbrella as the six nations and the lions uh they're all in the same building all operated sort of under one company uh, by John Fein, and that's separated out now. Each each one, of the lines is its own company, Six Nations is its own company, and you know, Pro Twelve, Pro Fourteen, United Rugby Championship now is its own company, and that was very important because, you know, um, the company would share staff, and you can imagine with two of those, two of the biggest properties in in rugby, uh, where all the resources would go. So there was really only David Jordan who's our tournament director and has been for you know uh, 15, 16 years. Uh, there was only really him and a handful of other staff who were dedicated to work on, on, on the league. So the priorities were make sure it's on TV, get the fixtures up and running um, and, and get, a, get, get a commercial partner in if you can. And there wasn't a marketing department like we have now. We didn't use brand agencies and everything like we do now. Um, so very much the part, you know, this, whether it was Rabo Direct or Magners or Guinness, they kind of came in and led the way for the look and feel of things. So, um, you know, and the, the, the Guinness brand with black and gold is, is brilliant. Um, and there's a lot of affection for the, for the Magners. And even, you know, when you look at the, the, the trophy lifts from the Rabo days, all the, the blue and orange is very striking as well. So, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's really just, it was, it was about resources and, you know, Martin's role when he came in, um, you know, 
the shareholders who are the Irish, Welsh and Scottish unions, and now that obviously includes CBC and the Italians, you know, his job was to go out, put a team together and, and really sort of start upgrading the tournament where we could. Um, and I suppose the United Rugby Championship is really, you know, a big major uh, product of all of those efforts. I'm really looking forward to it, but um, you were good enough to to agree to answer a few questions from patrons, uh, from the Lucid patrons. So I'll just get to a couple of those. The first one comes from Neve Ward and she said, it's all about the Rainbow Cup. And she wants to know, was that initially meant to be the URC or were both in the work simultaneously? I don't think, it, no, it wasn't necessarily supposed to be simultaneous. Um, and I think the first thing that we really got flagged to us, and this is sort of spurred by the pandemic, but by the time the summer was rolling around, um, we kind of were getting an indication that Super Rugby might be breaking up in its current, or in the format that we knew it. Um, so, and we probably always had our mindset to, you know, adding more South African teams in the future, but that was probably coming to a point maybe two years down the line when the original Super Rugby broadcast deal would have expired at that point maybe, but um, nobody kind of knew for sure. Then in September, the South African General Council sort of voted to say, look, let's place our teams into the Pro 14 competition. Um, and I think what we had then, the first conversation was, right, at the time we couldn't get the Kings and the Cheetahs to travel because of COVID. Um, and they hadn't, they hadn't started playing games in South Africa yet at that point. So we had to start the Pro 14 in um, early October. And as the question that was asked, like just from a competition point of view, is there any way, you know, that they could enter the competition, but enter it later, potentially play all their derbies in South Africa first and maybe join in, South, in January. Um, but, you know, I suppose trying to keep pace with the pandemic is really tricky. Uh, so you've got that and you've got so many other elements at play as well in terms of contractual obligations and, and these sort of things. But, at the heart of it all was how do we have a competition that integrity for European qualification is protected? And you could argue that if the South African teams came in and they didn't play every team at least once, then that's not fair if somebody says, well, I lost out on Europe by a couple of points um, and I had to play all four of the South African teams. And the team that got in, maybe they only played two. So it was really, it was a very onerous task um, coinciding with not very much time to put it all together. And I think, you know, a lot of options were put to our board and our shareholders. And ultimately people just said, look, if we can have a cup competition at the end of the Pro 14, that's probably the best way because it doesn't interfere with, with European qualification. So that's how we ended up with 16 round Pro 14 and just the two conference winners um, going into the final. Um, I think we'd all have liked to have seen semi-finals. Um, but uh, just the weeks available in the in the rugby calendar just, just didn't allow for that. So yeah, we ended up with the uh, with the Rainbow Cup, and um, not the Rainbow Cup any of us wanted. We wanted to see from day one. We wanted to see all those cross hemisphere games, um, and you know, just we were incredibly mightily close to um, having those games from rounds four to six be as as we we'd plan them to be with the South African teams coming up here. Um, but, you know, just, I think we were just a hair away from different government approvals, 
for various points of entry and that type of thing. So we didn't get there. Uh, we still got the final. And I think one of the things we also got, was, which was great, was the South African teams were available if you were watching on um, Premier Sports or if you were watching on Air Sports, you got to see that. But also we had them on our socials and we had the full highlights. So people got to see these guys before the Lions as well. And um, so you try and make the, the best out of a, a bad situation. Um, and I think I'd probably speak for nearly every sporting competition in the world and um, this year is not how we mapped it out that's for certain <laughs> and that's the thing i mean people were giving out about the rainbow cup online and you know in different places i felt it was pretty unwarranted to be honest due to i mean i can only begin to imagine the the organize the organizational stress of trying to put something like that together in the midst of a, go, of a global pandemic you know so i mean i enjoyed it um you know don't get me wrong i like you said, would have liked to have seen a semi-final in a Pro 14, but like it is what it is at the end of the day and you just got to roll with it. But at the end of the day, it was still good to see Benetton lift that um, Rainbow Cup at the end of the at the end of the competition, you know, so I was I was happy out there. Um, the next question actually comes uh, in from owner Anya and he wants to know how long the URC has been in the pipeline. Has it just been in the pipeline since you heard those rumours of, you know, the new Super Rugby or was it something that you were trying to imagine for a couple of years now? Yeah, I, th- I think rebranding the tournament and having a new name um, really on the agenda for the last five or six years. And, you know, I think early on in, in um, my time in the company, when I arrived in 20, summer 2016, you know, we were, were gearing up to try and see if we could, you know, enter an American franchise or and or a Canadian one and stuff. We were looking at North America and that was seen as an opportunity. And then there was the the breakup of Super Rugby in terms of their downsize and the Cheetahs and the Kings came out. Um, and then we were approached by people in South Africa about saying, well, we know you guys want to expand. You know, we have two teams that need competition and, you know, they have frontline professional players involved. Um, so I think the the expansion idea and the rebrand and finding a name that has a bit of meaning and a bit of purpose that's probably always been sort of at the top of the list from from probably 2015, 2016. Um, how it would come about and when it would come about and who would be in it. There were probably different ideas um, at different times. I mean, certainly one of my earliest memories uh, working for the tournament was um, that someone had presented the idea of calling it the Atlantic Rugby Championship. You know, obviously, you know, if we were going into North America and it was this idea of sort of maybe moving away from numbers and the word pro and, and different things. So, yeah, there's there's it's been there for a long time. But um, with many things, you kind of have to you really have to start looking down the line and saying, what's the best competition uh, structure? And we always felt that given the, the weekends available in the calendar, given the fact that so many of our teams uh, are mass producers of international players for, um, for the Six Nations. And, you know, <clears throat> it's easy in France and Scotland, France and, and England where, you know, you might have a Saris or a Quinns where there's more than two or three players called up to the national squad. And that can make a big difference. But you look at Glasgow, Benetton, um, Leinster, there are times during the Six Nations they can be missing up, up to 20 players. And that's just, just 
you need a second squad entirely. Um, and we needed to ensure that a new competition structure would um, create fewer opportunities for our teams to be without their, their best players. So you kind of look at, you know, we got down to 21 rounds from 22. Uh, then we were just kind of saying, well, how do we get down to 18? And that sort of helped lead the way in the structure that we have now. So if you can get the structure right, and if you can get the what's happening on the pitch, if that can work and people are happy with that, um, it could probably be called anything, <laughs> you know. Um, but but ultimately, we we did want a name that that just made sense and that people could could buy into a little bit. Does it feel like a like a fresh start with the branding? Yeah, completely. Because the, the branding or the values associated with the United Rugby Championship it forces us now to to start living those values. So you know, the idea is <clears throat> many people would say to us during sort of the the process when we spoke to clubs and media and we did supporter surveys and all these things. People would kind of say, "Look, you're not a national tournament." Um, but you should embrace all the differences, you know? And I think that's that element, you'll, you'll hear the word diversity a lot. Um, and it's not just about where players are coming from, but it's actually, you know, even within Ireland or Wales, you've got four teams each who would actually say they've got very different identities. You know, yes, they're Welsh, yes, they're Irish, but Connacht's identity is very different to Leinster's. Munster's is very different to Ulster's. Um, and it's about tapping into that. It's about tapping into the national identities as well. And just small things like, you know, for our explainer video for, um, for to show people how the new structure worked. I mean, we had that voiceovers recorded for that uh, in Oskelga, in Welsh, in Afrikaans, in Kosa, which is the other language um, in, uh, in South Africa, and then Italian. And we need to do more to kind of just little touch points to make sure that everybody feels included, that we're not just speaking one language to one audience, that we've got to be sort of more open on that. And then, you know, I think the idea of being united as well is kind of going to drive our our approach to CSR off the pitch, which we've never really, uh, we've never really done a huge amount on. Um, good reasons. We haven't had a big enough team really to resource that when you're just trying to make sure that the tournament is running. But we're taking that on and, you know, we can't run community programs because our clubs and unions do such good jobs on that but we can run programs that recognize excellence in those areas and we can find other ways to maybe connect um you know heroes to supporters or, or communities and things like that so um yeah loads of good work sort of going to kick off from that one so being pro 12 being pro 14 um there's not much at the heart of that that kind of gives you a mission or a reason for what are you trying to achieve um, and everything that's gone into United Rugby Championship, which I think will probably be more commonly known as URC, but there's, there's a huge amount of uh, value work put in behind the scenes uh, that we've shared with all the clubs and it, it allows the clubs to come to us and hold us accountable for saying this is what we want to be, you know. Kieran Ormond had a great question and he said, why go away from the two-conference system that you have currently, and do you think that the pools will benefit some teams more than others? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's one of the things that it was it was great to see in the aftermath of announcing the, the new format was it was proper sporting debates. Um, 
that people were having with different views rather than everybody just piling in and telling us it was terrible, um, which can happen. <laughs> so um, I think one thing we wanted to make really clear, we wanted one league table. If you want to win this, it's one league table and the top eight get into the, the knockouts. The pools are, are basically, we needed, we needed a logical construct to allow us protect the Derby games home and away. Um, and <clears throat> we also felt from speaking to the clubs that some of them liked the idea very much of there being a Welsh champion, an Irish champion, um, something to kind of hang your hat on. And what I'm looking forward to there is we will have we will have trophies created for each of the individual pools, um, and there'll be a slight rebrand to how we refer to them and how we refer to those games. So I'm looking forward to that ahead of the season. Um, and it just it will give those games. As if they needed more meaning, but it will give them more meaning. And 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 in the, I think when you look, we've put the Scots and the Italians together because we've got four, 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 and then two and two. You know, we have to put those sides together. But it's interesting. Some people say, well, if you're in the Irish pool, it's going to be harder because those teams are so good. But I think it's funny enough, though, as well. If you look in the Scottish and Italian pool, Benetton, Glasgow, and Edinburgh all think they can win that. And, and they will all believe that their supporters will believe that in Wales I think at least three if not all four of the teams are going to think they can win that the South African pool is going to be very tough as well so yeah I think from when you look at everything on paper um, when you look at everything on paper you might say oh well maybe that those opponents are easier than these ones but um, sport's not quite like that um, so it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out I think what's probably you've People may have heard so the, the qualification process from Europe, which is one pool winner um, and then the next highest ranked four teams from the league table. That's in place for the first two years. And after that, um, each of the unions involved have to vote whether to keep it or not. And it has to be a unanimous decision to keep it. Otherwise, the top eight will qualify for Europe as they finish in the league table. So that might see us do slight tweaking with what we have in the pools in terms of what points count um, in those tables and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think, look, we're, we're going to get a really good look at how this works in, in year one and, uh, and year two, and then we'll see what year three brings for us. Um, in, terms of, in terms of, I suppose, strength of, of the fixtures, look, every team is going to play everyone at least once. Um, so, you know, I think that's as, as fair as you can get um, without playing way too many games. And I think pretty clear that supporters, clubs, players, nobody wants more games. Just on the qualifying for Europe, the top eight teams, let's say, or let's say the top of every pool and then the next four teams in the pool or in the in the group in the, the league, I should say. If a team the year previous wins Europe, so let's say Munster, Leinster or Ulster, or whatever, win Europe the year before, does that mean that they automatically qualify and let's say eight and they finish, let's say, I don't know, first for the sake of argument. Does that mean that second to ninth qualify for Europe then? Um, I think it's well, we've, it's always just been a case that, you know, where you finish dictates whether you qualify or not. Um, and what we used to have is if you won us, you then created an extra place in your tournament. So we've had a couple of those scenarios crop up going into um going into seasons, or sorry, going into finals or semi-finals, because the way it works with Europe is that 
if your competition has a winner in Europe, um, you can get an extra place, but there's a certain amount of criteria have to apply. So essentially, um, everybody from the semifinals of Champions Cup and Challenge Cup has to have already qualified from their league position in their respective competitions. And if that's all occurred, then um, Pro 14 or Premiership or Top 14 um, would get an extra place. So, yeah, there's, <clears throat> I mean, there's no absolute, absolute guarantees, um, but I would find it very hard to imagine a team would be good enough to win the Champions Cup um, and not finish either in the top eight or, or win their pool. So, No, fair enough. Um, Owen Harrison had a question and he said, has there been any development on the streaming service and are you looking at going down streaming via maybe by pool or by team? Um, yeah, so there's, there's been a lot of, <laughs> a lot of very hard and fast work going on and it, we've been speaking to, to Orti about this proposition um, for a couple of months now who we're going to partner with to deliver this. So um, it'll work domestically in Ireland because there isn't a major uh, pay TV rights holder in the marketplace the way there was with Air Sports. So all of the games will be um, on Premier Sports, but they're not producing any games in Ireland. So they're not necessarily acting like a, a a uh, producer and broadcaster in Ireland, those games will be done um, in the main by PG Car and RTE. So we're going to have this product we're selling internationally. We're going to be able to do um, some, we'll be able to sell it in Ireland. And I think what it does is we're, we're trying to work out at the moment, is it a season pass for your team? Is, it, you know, is there a season pass for just the whole competition? Um, are there individual packages you can sell? So uh, people who have much more expertise in the marketing areas and who are doing their research are trying to figure out what the right balance of offers is. So um, I think you mentioned, like, is it a pool pass? Could there be an Irish pass? Potentially, but it's, it's you kind of have to work out, you know, um, does somebody just want to see all their their own team's games? And what's the difference between somebody saying, I want to see all the Irish games and I want to see every game in the tournament and you know there might not really be much of a difference there so it could just be a team pass and a season pass um but again as i say there's people who have um, a lot more expertise are going to handle those decisions the next question is actually my own one and um it kind of comes off the back of having you know in lockdown we all watched plenty of sport documentaries on netflix and amazon and everything like that and the one that strikes me the most was the f1 drive to survive and like i've never watched an f1 race in my life um, but after watching that, you know, I'm suddenly tuning into results and I'm having a little look and say, oh, I recognize that name. Would the United Rugby Championship look at doing something like that with Netflix or with Amazon or even independently themselves, um, maybe picking a couple of teams and following them around in the background or creating their own kind of documentary that was season long? Yeah, well, the, the door, door, door is wide open if anyone from Netflix or, or Amazon is, is listening in. Um, we do have, uh, one of our clubs is going to be embarking on a, on a documentary series, um, and I don't know if they've publicised that yet, so I'm not going to mention their name. Um, and, you know, our CEO is formerly worked in um, F1 and um, motorsport and he's also a major um, NFL fan so you don't need to sell him on the idea of a hard knocks or you know um, whatever it takes type, type documentary series um, we're actively looking on our side we have clubs actively looking we have a club who's who's putting plans in place to do it uh, and it's trying to find uh, the right way to go about it because I think what's important from us as a league 
is that we need to try and find a way to bring the story of the entire tournament um, to a wider audience and find the personalities and um, the right players, athletes, coaches to be involved in that and people who want to be involved. That's very, very important. We have some teams who will let their social media uh, guys run riot and and the players all chip in and stuff like that. We have other teams who um, regimented is the wrong word, but they just have a certain belief that this is all they want people to focus on. This is, you know, and that they they might draw a very distinct line between the athletic part of the building and the marketing and commercial part of the building. And it's, you know, where those two meet is a, you know, is a kind of, it isn't as expansive as it is in other places. Um, and that can stem from, you know, that can stem from the head coach sometimes as well. You know, we'll see Australian and New Zealand coaches are usually far more open to doing things um, with broadcasters uh, you look at Andy Friend, for example, the, you know, he, he was a big proponent in TG Carr uh, and the excellent coverage they provide of doing those uh, warm-up uh, interviews where he's mic'd up, he's doing the warm-up and then somebody's chatting to him in his ear and he talks back a little bit. But out of that, then you also get some of those lovely little clips where he's chatting to Jack Carty. And the importance there is that there's a trust that nothing gets broadcast that will compromise, you know, tactics or, or, or the integrity of the dressing room. Um, but then the other side of it is when Connacht do that and they show it's a success, the other coaches see it and they go, okay, well, what's there to be afraid of here? So we're massively, massively ambitious to try and, you know, pull back the curtain, let people come in and, and see um, and see how things operate. Because I think we all know when you watch these competition or these documentaries, you know, you kind of do grow that little bit of an affinity for, as you say, maybe a driver. Or you might, you know, if you saw behind the scenes on Dragons or Edinburgh, you might all of a sudden you learn about a player's story or a coach's story. And you kind of then want to look out for their results and you know hope good things happen for them. Um, the point about um, the point about F1, their audience, I think there's there's 80 million people worldwide now because of the drive to survive who had never seen or watched Formula One before have now basically shown in some shape or form that they are interested in Formula One having watched Drive to Survive. There's people in the US who never even watched Formula One and they watch this and they're now tuning in or they're following on social media. So it is, um, yeah, it's it's major, major sort of content to have uh, and it really helps sell the, um, sell the tournament, sell the teams, and fingers crossed, it won't be too long before we start seeing more of that type of content coming out of URC. That would be fantastic. Because even like, you know, the Sunderland till I die, like I'm not a Sunderland fan, but I certainly look out for the results now and everything like that. So I can only imagine how much it would grow the game um, amongst those who, who, who don't currently watch it. But moving on anyway, with a couple more questions and uh, I'm conscious of your time. So I'll only, I'll only shout a couple more. Uh, Cahill Ormond was wondering, how do you see the no test window games impacting both the league and teams? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one because uh, the strongest teams will be able to be more consistent in their team selection, and teams who might not have ten plus internationals um, may be able to approach their recruitment a little bit more differently. So it'll have different dynamics. I think what we should expect is we should expect to see teams benefit from more cohesion. And hopefully what we really want to see is it's not the hardest thing in the world 
for Leinster and Munster and Glasgow um, and we'll, we'll see with the South African teams, like their strength and the, you know, the academy systems that they have, they will always find good players and they'll probably always recruit good players. They look after themselves in terms of improving year on year. How do we help Benetton and Zebra, um, Edinburgh Dragons? How do you make the teams who are further down the table improve and not get cut adrift from the guys at the top? And that's where not crossing over with international windows helps them because them having their two or three internationals, if you're Dragons or your four or five internationals, that's major to make sure that you have them more regularly. If you're Edinburgh or you're Zebra and you lose 15 players, you can't, you can't compete during international windows. You just can't because you haven't got the budget to make sure you have enough senior pros that you've recruited in and overseas players to really make up the difference. Um, and then I think, you know, Leinster are kind of on, on an island of their own just because the sheer strength of and the calibre of player who comes into their academy, not what comes out. And I think everyone looks at this and they say, well, look, the players Leinster produce, the players coming in. And there are players who cannot get into the Leinster Sub Academy who get offered senior contracts or development contracts by the other provinces straight away. So I think if we can see more competition out of the teams um, in the lower reaches of the table during the international windows, I think that's going to raise the standards overall. Do you see a higher workload on the more, let's say, international players at smaller clubs or at weaker clubs? Uh, I'm not sure necessarily because they. They'll always see they can all only really play a certain amount of games or projected to play a certain amount of games. So what you need to do is ensure then that you're not playing too many games in URC, for example. So if you're playing lots of games on either side of November and during November and either side and during the Six Nations, there's a lot of games where players are not available. But also if those games were a different part of the season, they would get to play. So it's not just necessarily saying that, um, I mean, I still don't see a situation where, let's say Tyke Furlong, for example, plays, starts five games in a row for Ireland and Six Nations. Is he going to start the next game for Leinster, whether it's in a week, two weeks or three weeks? Probably not. Um, but, diff, you know, the, it changes for different players. So we'll see what way the coaches uh, work the system. I think what we've done is we've given all of the club coaches um, some very good arguments to make sure they get their hands on the players they need more often, that's for sure. Um, and there's no greater, there's no greater group of people to, uh, to, to spin the tables in their favor when um, the authorities or the overarching rules come in, you know, because we see it when laws change and people say, well, we're bringing this in for this effect. And then the coaches go, well, actually we're going to do this instead. So we'll see how some of that plays out, but I think we should expect to see more of these guys more often, but I don't think that comes at an overall cost of, of player welfare. Looking at the squad sizes and everything, Hugh Blaney had a great question. And because of international players being around during non-test games, obviously, and stuff like that, maybe not playing, as you said, but you know, certainly you, you still have guys looking for game time. Will there be a resurrection in the British and Irish League as players are looking for more game time? Yeah, I'd say, I think we've got to we've got to find a way to create a cup competition in there. Um, and I think we may, we may be able to, you know, work on something with, with premiership rugby on that. Um, because one thing that's, what's interesting about playing less games is if you compare it to a couple of years ago, it's, um, 
it's down to home games from the 11 that most most uh, supporters would would be used to for a season ticket and there are some supporters who are like oh if i see the internationals more often i don't mind the less games but there are other supporters who are like i want to see i used to like those games where i saw the young lads play because i want to see who the next guys up the, the ladder are so it's about saying how do you create something that's interesting and competitive it's not quite the full uh league um type of a game but it's something whereby uh, these guys can get their opportunity and i think some form of a british and irish competition um is certainly going to be in the works and additionally i'd say we'll probably be looking at trying to say how do we get a women's competition up and running um and look all these things have their challenges while we're still dealing with covid because a lot of operations budgets are spent on enforcing so many different structures now to keep the first team covid safe um that you know would previously been spent on a teams or women's rugby and things like that but i think hopefully what we should see as we come out of this is um people will understand and have a renewed appreciation for the value of a good a competition and for you know what needs to be done to keep growing um the women's game underneath international rugby because i think there's a lot of work to be done there as well still well, i'm conscious of your time so i just have two final questions that i'll just spin through very very quickly and the first one came from a number of people who actually texted in and um, they want to know that, you know, the pro, the pro 14 as it is, uh, the Rainbow Cup and everything in those competitions, amateur analysts were given like a lot of leeway to use footage for their own analysis, for their own coaching, for their own whatever it may be. And, you know, there was no real problem. And I'm sure it was all quite positive and, you know, it's free advertising for the league as it was and everything like that too. But will that be a gore in the future when with the United Rugby Championship or will it kind of be a problem because there are Southern Hemisphere teams coming in as well? Yeah, no, we, we've, we've spoken a lot, a lot about this internally and we kind of recognise that there's a need for um, independent content creators who want to use match footage um, not necessarily for commercial gain. And um, I think we, we're trying to find that there's after a certain point in the week where that actually can be uh, more freely encouraged. And we need to be able to also have some resources in place so that we can say, look, if you're, you know, if you want to use the footage, you know, here's the kind of, here's the, the do's and don'ts and, you know, making sure that people are, you know, whether it's using watermarks and, and different things, but also, you know, um, how do we give a platform to people like yourself um, and other content creators? Like, you know, can we do a feature on people maybe through our website as well and kind of highlight uh, the conversation and the work that's going on out there? Because in a dream scenario, I'd love to have a budget where I just went out, Jeff, and um, I asked you to do two days work for me and I asked loads of other people. Do you know what I mean? We'd love to have everybody. Um, there's so many good people out there. Um, you know, the budget, the budget wouldn't quite cover the all-star team of uh, independent content creators. So you, you kind of need to say, right, well, what are ways we can do a spotlight in this? Because as you say, it's just good for the promotion of the game. And, uh, you know, particularly, I, I think some of the interviews you've done with the coaches are brilliant. Um, I love listening to coaches because they think about so much of what they do in their job, whereas players are, you know, particularly the really good ones, they don't have to think an awful lot because they can just do, you know. Um, so, yeah, so anything that kind of helps with all of this content, we're trying to figure out. We just make sure that it works in a way that doesn't impact on the rights that, you know, people have paid 
quite a healthy sum for um, to show, you know, on the weekends and things like that. And because you know, that's the core revenue that that drives um, that drives success for the teams. You know, that's uh, a lot of money that they need to make sure is going into the bank account so that they can get everything they need from a coaching and player resource point of view. The very last question then comes from Mark Smith, and he wants to know how do you deal as a league with and I'm trying to phrase this kind of um, so it doesn't sound too controversial or too harsh, but how do you deal with as a league when you hear from, let's say, certain publications or when you hear from certain media people or whatever it may be, and they're just kind of downtrodden the league and they're saying it's not a great league and this should be a breakaway and, you know, we should join the premiership, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you deal with that as a league and trying to change those, I suppose, dispositions? I think first and foremost, we need to get to a place where we think we've got to where the, the competition structure is the best that we can actually make it. There's still external things, you know, around international windows that we don't have any control over, but we needed to make the best competition out of what was in our control. We think we've got that. Time will tell. We'll see how the first season or two goes. I think what people should be really excited about is we have a, like a fully expanded knockout stage now. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, the top eight teams, that's four quarterfinal matches and that's running three weeks in a row straight into the final. Um, you know, and I think you just have to look in in the US where you see when it's playoff time, just the amount of extra interest that generates for their sports. So I really hope that the, the product is going to do the talking for us. Um, I think one thing we'll always suffer from is that there's a certain um, national element that if you're a reporter and you're covering the premiership, you'll always kind of want to be proud that the English tournament or the English league is the best. Um, and I think when you're a conglomeration of different nationalities, nobody really feels like this is their, their place. It's like, you know, well, you know, the Celtic league or the pro 12 is not necessarily, it doesn't have a national, um, it doesn't have national roots. So it's easier to be dismissive, I think, um, and not. So I think when you compare us with Premiership, there's there's just slight ways that people can go in either direction for, for very natural reasons. Um, I think one thing that we want to come out of this is we want the teams and the players to be proud of where, they're, where they play. Uh, we had a former international came in, uh, had a chatting to some of us in our office before. He's played for the Lions. And his point about it was, he said, between the Irish and the Welsh and the Scots is that, you know, they always felt in Europe or in Six Nations, particularly the Irish guys, that they were better than the English and that they would always be able to beat them in those. But they always felt that the, the, the league that they play in should have been, you know, better as well because they felt like they wanted to be proud of where they played their week in, week out. Um, and I think that's something that we've, Hopefully, we'll get to that point now when the, new, the way the new tournament plays out. Um, and as for people who are really, really naysayers, the job is to try and prove them wrong or at least, you know, make them less, uh, less disgruntled, shall we say. Well, there'll always be people complaining at the end of the day, like that's just life. But I think having the quarterfinals is going to be just a huge extra element. I mean... If you're a team, a good team, especially with a good fan base, but you're kind of struggling throughout the season and suddenly there's one, two games left that you can sneak into that top eight. Like, I mean, that just creates its own excitement and it doesn't even have to be like, 
oh, we're not in the final. It's a case, or it's like, oh, our season's over and there's a couple of games still left. Who cares? It's a case of, geez, there's two games there. We need four points here. And then all we need is maybe a draw or, you know, whatever it may be. Like, I think it's going to create its own type of buzz, being honest with you. And, um, you know, we saw it there with the Premiership there this season. And I know people go on about the Premiership. I'm not one of them. But, you know, we did see Harlequins get into that top eight and suddenly, you know, they win the Premiership and that there's this huge buzz about it. And I think that, you know, something as simple as having that quarterfinal draw will make an extra and a complete extra element to it. Absolutely. And look, by the way, as well, I mean, from our point of view, um, you know, we work, we work with our colleagues in, in Premiership Rugby and, you know, we're business partners in terms of, you know, EPCR and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, a healthy Premiership and a healthy URC and a healthy Top 14, these are only good things for rugby. And um, I think it's brilliant to see, you know, what they have and what they've established, you know, over 25 years. You know, and I think that's one of the things people might need to just remember sometimes is we are the youngest and we've had to go through some growing pains and stuff like that. But hopefully, uh, hopefully the URC is now in a point where we can start to deliver and um, and people can be really proud of, of watching their team or representing their team in this competition. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens and I'm really looking forward to the competition. Adam, I'm conscious of your time. Thanks a minute for coming on and for, for answering everybody's questions. Brilliant stuff. They're, yeah, really good questions and happy to come on anytime. Spot on. And best of luck with the competition and everything like that. Looking forward to seeing how it works out.